Hi, it's Jen. Just a reminder that news is rapidly changing, and especially with elections, news moves fast. So things may have changed by the time you hear this podcast. So be sure to get all the latest news on your local NPR station or visit npr.org. And of course, visit us at the1a.org for our latest conversations. And as always, thanks for listening. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. It's time for our election roundup. It's been 48 hours, and most of the dust has settled on the midterms. That means it's time for some frank talk from our elected officials. Definitely not a Republican wave, that's for darn sure. A wave would have been like New Hampshire and Colorado. So, you know, you got to hats off to the Democrats. They perform well in a lot of these swing districts. If it's a divided government, maybe something good can come of it. And there's some frank talk from you, too. Hi, I'm Helen. I'm in Denver. I just feel an overwhelming feeling of relief because I'm primarily a climate voter. So I'm I'm quite relieved that the crazies didn't win. We'll get into more on what we know and still don't know about the midterm election results. We'll hear from you, look at the trends, and check in on the two states that could determine the fate of the Senate. Let's welcome our guests. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Rena Shaw. She's a political analyst and public affairs commentator. In the past, she's worked as a Republican strategist. Also with us in D.C. is Chris Scott. Chris is chief political officer at Democracy for America. That's a progressive political action committee founded by the former chair of the DEC and Democratic presidential candidate Howard Dean. Thanks to you both for being here. So let's start with what we know. Young people came in hot this year. They may be new voters, but they had a lot of impact. As projections from the 22 midterms continue to come in, it's pretty clear that Democrats should be thanking young voters for helping to deliver decisive wins. One poll estimated this election had the second highest youth voter turnout in almost three decades. Chris, how did young people prevent what Republicans were expecting, this red wave? So I think when we're looking at this midterm, I think Republicans underestimated what will actually motivate young voters to come out. I think, again, the Dobbs decision wasn't just something that uh, affected women overall in electorate, but it was something that young voters were very motivated about. But also, you're looking at a generation, particularly with Generation Z, that has constantly have had to go through school drills uh, for gun safety training in case of a mass shooting. When you're factoring all those things, a lot of those issues were key motivating factors of we want to take power now, similar to what you saw with millennials uh, when they got a chance to vote for Obama for the first time in 2008. Maxwell Alejandro Frost is a Democrat and a 25-year-old community organizer. He's officially become the first Gen Z member of Congress after winning a House seat in Florida's 10th Congressional District. Chris, what more can you tell us about him? Yes, so Maxwell Frost is one of my favorite candidates from this cycle. Uh, He's a DFA-endorsed candidate. Look, this is somebody that from his early days in the youth has just been an activist, an organizer. And when you look at kind of how he's propelled himself to get to Congress, he was a real dark horse in that race uh, early on. Not a lot of political experience compared to a lot of his opponents. And essentially with 
grassroots organizing uh, from catalyzing not just young voters in the uh, area, uh, but really young voters uh, and progressives around the nation to help fund his campaign. Uh, that is how he was able to clear this field uh, and now is going to be the first Gen Zer and also Afro-Cuban uh, in Congress. And it's great to see. Well, a big part, as you said, of Maxwell's platform was gun legislation. And this is what he told CNN yesterday. Well, there's a lot that we need to do, right? I mean, just a few months ago, the leading cause of death for children went from automobile accidents to gun violence. So our children are literally on the front lines of this issue. Something that is universally accepted that people are excited about is universal background checks. Very simple. Most Republicans and most NRA members are for universal background checks. And so for me, it feels like the new uh, the, the, the new uh, purpose of bipartisanship and what people call bipartisanship as far as gun violence is concerned is what the NRA accepts. And that's not what it should be. It should be what people are for. And universal background checks okay. is something that we need to pass. I spoke to a group of students at UT Austin yesterday and their interest in this election. I asked them what drove them to the polls. And I mean, it was all over the place. But Rena, what's your read on what really fired up young voters this year? I believe that young voters show up and show out when they feel like their futures are on the line. And sure, climate change has been a topic that's always thought to energize a younger base of of voters, whether it's on the right or left. I'm part of a group of pro-conservation Republicans and have been for a very long time. I'm proud to be aligned with younger Republican voters who believe that we need to do more to conserve uh, our, our environment and do better for the country in general. But this time around, it was so different. I think when we talk about abortion, there is so much to unpack with today's young voters who are right of center. You know, every time abortion gets put to voters, they support it. The anti-abortion stuff is based by gerrymandered legislators when the public doesn't pay attention. That's just a fact. Uh, You know, I think, look, there's this thing here. When we talk about high school kids right now, What happens when the high school kids right now who are marching out of school over issues such as transgender lives and how they matter, what about when those people can vote in two years? That may make a real impact. And that's what's not genuinely being talked about right now. I I made my career on the right of Um, on the right of the political spectrum, but I can still applaud Maxwell Frost's win because I think it's encouraging. I've often felt over the years that we have too few uh, younger voters. I'm a millennial myself. You know, we, this is a good signal for democracy. When you see somebody who was driving rideshare, not just a long, not too long ago, and now he's going to be a member of Congress only in America, only in America. Well, LGBTQ politicians also made strides. Mara Healy became the first woman and first openly gay person to be elected governor in the state of Massachusetts. Becca Balint is the first woman and openly gay person elected to Congress from Vermont. Now, both Healy and Balint com- campaigned on progressive platforms. Chris, how important are these wins? They're huge. I think one of the biggest storylines uh, coming out of this midterm has to be uh, that progressive values are really registering with the Democratic base. And it's something that the Democratic Party is going to have to lean more into. You're looking at Maura Hill. You're looking at Becca Ballant. You're looking at Maxwell 
uh, Frost. You're looking at a summer league in Pennsylvania or Greg Kesar uh, in Texas. Uh, the shift that we are seeing in the Democratic Party, they want younger candidates. They want more black and brown candidates. They want uh, more LGBTQ plus candidates. They want candidates that look like them that they can feel on an everyday level. Now, Latinos also made waves in the 2022 midterms. Local Latino candidates had some big successes, but they remain underrepresented rather, in the federal government. Rena, how were Latino voters courted by the GOP? It's an interesting relationship that the Republican Party has had with Latino voters. There's always been this sense that the issue of abortion would would keep many a voter in today's Republican Party. But there are other issues that matter. I mean, of, of course, there there's immigration and then there's gun rights. Pew Research recently conducted some research about Hispanic Republicans and how they are less likely than non-Hispanic Republicans to prioritize protection of gun rights. That's really huge. In particular, Latino Republicans and Republican-leaning independents differ substantially from other Republicans on guns and immigration. And so that highlights the pretty weak ties that Hispanic Republicans have to the GOP. I think they need to wake up to the morning coffee, the, the leadership of the RNC, and not rely on Latino voters entirely. And I've, I've said this for the longest time with Asian American voters as well. You can't expect that they'll show up if they feel like the economy's in trouble. You need to have a long-term strategy to make sure these voters know that their values are aligned with yours and that you'll have policy solutions that speak to their everyday needs. Now, CNN exit polling shows roughly 60% of Latino voters went for the Dems. But Chris, in some states like Florida, Latinos went big for the GOP. We've heard lots of criticisms about the DNC's ground game or lack thereof in Florida. Does that dynamic concern you? It is concerning. Uh, I look at Florida similar to another state that I've worked in before in Texas in that uh, Latino voters are definitely not a monolith, especially uh, in those states. I think what you saw was the GOP did a better job of courting uh, Latino voters when you're looking at the Cuban uh, population down in Florida, when you're looking at even how the Puerto Rican uh, population, a lot of new immigrants uh, voted in this election. You look at that shift in Miami-Dade County, I think that has to be a wake-up call for Democrats of you have to be uh, authentic uh, and engaging with these populations and you have to do it early and often, similar to what you have to do. Uh, with the African-American community if you want to be able to more consistently rely on this community as a voting block for you. Susan Gage tweeted about Florida, the only red wave was in Florida, and that's because the governor fixed the maps to create an autocracy. She's talking about how the governor's, uh, Governor DeSantis's move to redraw the maps after um, this latest census. We also got this email from Will, who says, my daughter and her college friends in Metro Philadelphia voted in the Pennsylvania elections. But if both parties don't change electoral processes to allow more choices than just Democrat or Republican, then Gen Z will become as disillusioned as older generations. We're bringing the show to you from KUT in Austin, Texas. Be back with more in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Introducing Group Sessions, a new BetterHelp therapy offering currently in pilot testing. Therapist Joy Bergheimer shares how finding a community of people with shared experiences can help clients become more comfortable with therapy. 
For quite some time, we have not normalized mental wellness. And a lot of our families would shame you when you would say that you were feeling depressed or you're feeling overwhelmed. If you have been told over and over again that basically you have a character flaw, if you're seeking therapy, that's going to be a reason that people don't want to go seek therapy. But actually being in group with other people and hearing them say a story that feels like it came right out of your book is huge. Like, oh my gosh, this is not abnormal, right? And this person is further along in their journey than me. So now I know that therapy is something that can shift things for me. So really seeing their peers has been a huge shift for people accepting therapy for themselves. To get 10% off your first month of online therapy, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Let's get back to the conversation. And once again, we're working through a tsunami of political news, red waves, blue walls, and all of those who got stuck in between. We're talking to political analyst Rena Shaw. Rena has served as a senior staffer to two Republican members of the U.S. Congress and Chris Scott. Chris is chief political officer at Democracy for America. That's a progressive political action committee. Now, some geo- potential GOP challengers to former President Trump had strong showings. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, and Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. And here's Scott hinting at a 2024 run in his victory speech. My grandfather voted for the first man of color to be reelected as president of the United States. I wish he had lived long enough long enough to see perhaps another man of color elected president of the United States. But this time, let it be a Republican and not just a Democrat. Rena, how has Donald Trump's profile within the GOP shifted, if at all, now now that the midterms are done? Well, I call this segment the maybe Trumpers. These are people who, again, are not never Trump, and they're not always Trump. The never Trumpers, like me, opposed him from the outset, didn't vote for him either time, or voted for him the first time and didn't vote for him again the second time. The always Trumpers are the people that still attend his rallies to this day. It's the maybe Trumpers who hold the power in today's GOP. They are a large segment of people who are frustrated with the drama that Donald Trump brings every time he opens his mouth. They don't like the way he operates. They don't think he's got much to offer in the way of solutions for the party moving forward. I tend to agree with all of that. Now, the reality is this, is that the Trump effect is solid. He doesn't just loom large over the Republican Party. He is the leader, and he has not gone away despite having lost the 2020 election. His impact is great. We saw it on Tuesday leading up. The candidate quality, as Senator Mitch McConnell called it, really low-quality candidates have emerged after Trump left office. And they've all done it by his playbook. But the maybe Trumpers, like I said, who have the power, they are the people who want somebody else. And that somebody else that they're looking nicely at is a DeSantis. We love our governors on the Republican side. Governor Glenn Youngkin certainly is a name that's been floated since the minute he took office in Virginia. I think DeSantis has the greatest chance right now because of the ground game he could mount almost immediately, whether or not Trump announces. The question will be, will DeSantis be his own worst enemy? Will he sort of kowtow to the effect of people who want to see Trump do it right? Because Trump is good for fundraising. That's the end of the story. 
Well, we're getting some thoughts on Trump from some of you. Stephen says, like many others, I'm so relieved that common sense has won. Time to put Trumpism in the dustbin of history where it belongs. And Jennifer in Springfield also emailed us. I'm so, oh, rather, that's, uh, nope, Bill Shamblin emailed. I'm proud of my country for seemingly rejecting Trumpism in many areas. Chris, how how are Democrats weighing the potential of another Trump presidential run? I think to see Trump on the ticket again would uh, definitely be a galvanizing factor for Democratic voters. Uh, But at the same time, it is a very scary thing uh, to see. Essentially, what uh, we've said often uh, at DFA is that uh, the GOP created a monster uh, in allowing Donald Trump to run wild the way that he did. And you see the trickle-down effect in that candidates, even if they don't want to be exactly Donald Trump, they recognize we have to embrace some of those values. And so one of the things that I think is going to be most prominent going into the 2024 presidential is how many candidates from the GOP side do you still uh, see uh, embrace those extremism uh, values that you saw run rampant uh, in a lot of the challengers that we saw in these midterms? Well, two key states could decide who controls the Senate, and we'll get the latest from Nevada and Arizona in just a moment. But let's say Democrats do come up short in both the House and the Senate. They were already heading into a lame duck session. Chris, how would losing power change their plans? So I I don't think it has to change the plans a lot. Uh, I think the biggest thing that's going to be the factor for Democrats is, are you still willing to show that you are fighting for the things that people want to see? We might not get everything passed, but people want to see that you're still going to fight for the things uh, that they want. Are you still going to push on health care? Are you going to go a little bit further on student debt relief? Are you going to continue to try to fight uh, to shore up voting? rights and uh, codifying Roe, even if it's shot down. So I think that is the pathway that the Democratic Party has to take to make sure that they shore up uh, our base and make sure that our base knows that we're fighting on a regular basis for them. And, And Rena, what about for the GOP in light of these midterm results? Even if they gain control of the House and Senate, it'll be by a very, very slim margin. So what are you thinking the party will do? The party ought to look inwards, much like it did in the 2012 autopsy report that I was a part of. But we've come a long way from that time. I don't suspect that Republican leaders will want to look inward here. They'll just want to celebrate whatever's happened, and they'll go right forward with exactly what leaders in the House have said, Republicans, that they want to investigate Democrats. They want revenge. They're out for blood. Now, if you look at suburban young moms who still feel the pain on the pocketbook, uh, look, the Biden administration has certainly tried to do its best, but there is a reality. Economy is front of mind for a lot of young families. And if the Republicans want any hope of having young mothers in particular look at them more seriously, they've got to stop kowtowing to the extremist fringes. I remember when Biden took office. This is exactly the advice that Republicans wanted to give Biden, wanted to say, don't Give in to your left, your most extreme leftist folks, and, and serve them. Well, what are Republicans doing right now? They've, they've basically suffered these electoral losses in places they should have won because of the candidate quality and what they're talking about. 
They haven't put forward solutions that make anyone genuinely believe that they can lead the way. That's what they ought to do moving forward in January if they're able to really uh, show Democrats that they're a party we're taking seriously and a party that doesn't just engage in political grievance and, and genuinely trying to divide Americans, to put us in boxes, something that the Republican Party always said we didn't want to do. We wanted to be a party for everyone. We wanted to be a big tent party. Well, the Democrats showed that pretty well this week, that they could be a big tent party. It's up to Republicans to push back. Well, experts say two states may end up controlling the fate of the Senate. So let's check in on them, starting with Nevada. This Senate race is still too close to call. Republican Adam Laxalt leads by a narrow margin, but the late counted mail ballots, particularly in Clark County, that's home to Las Vegas, are expected to help the Democrat Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. Lucia Starbuck joins us from KUNR Reno. She's their democracy reporter. Lucia, it's great to have you on the program. Hi, thanks for having me. So bring us up to speed. What's the state of the race at the moment? Um, So as you mentioned, it is too close to call. Um, There are well over 100,000 ballots still left to be counted in Clark County, where Las Vegas resides, and also in Washoe County, um, where Reno Sparks is. So it's way too close to call. Tell us more about these two candidates. Yeah, so they, it's it's an It's interesting. They are both former state attorney generals. Um, I'll start with Cortez Masto. Um, She kind of straddles this line between, um, you know, standing with Biden and maybe distancing herself. She, of course, helped pass the American Rescue Plan Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, which brought, you know, billions of of dollars to to Nevada. Um, She actually um, opposed Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. Um, She says it doesn't address the root issue of how expensive college is. Um, She also has support from police unions um, endorsements there. Um, She's made, you know, um, protecting access to to abortions a large part of her platform. It is protected in Nevada under state law up to 24 weeks and longer if a physician believes the life of the pregnant person is at risk. Um, Adam Laxalt, he um, is a... uh, very prominent in early 2020 election denier. He was the Nevada campaign chair for um, a Nevada campaign chair for Trump. Um, You know, he's put forth several lawsuits, including one a couple days after the 2020 election, claiming that there was widespread fraud, that, um, you know, people who weren't allowed to vote voted. He also has police union support. Um, He is anti-abortion. He called the overturn of of Roe v. Wade a historic a historic victory. Um, He said he supports a 13-week ban. However, Republicans in Nevada have kind of taken a backseat approach on that issue, kind of saying it's uh, it's up to the voters. Um, He's also promised to, quote, stop the spending spending spree by Democrats that has led to record-breaking inflation. Well, you mentioned Washoe and Clark counties, and they're both key to the final results, but they're still processing tens of thousands of ballots. Honestly, our message to the public is that we are working on it. Please be patient. Um, It does take time. We want to make sure, like I said, that we're doing it right. We don't want to do it fast. We want to do it right. That was Washoe County Interim Registrar of Voters, Jamie Rodriguez. Lucia, tell us about these counties. What kind of voters live there? Yes. So um, in Clark County, it's pretty blue. Um, It's it's huge. Um, In Washoe County, it's definitely more of a swing state or a swing county. Um, Right now, Cortez, Masto and Laxalt are are pretty close in that county, whereas, you know, in in Clark, um, Cortez, Masto has a pretty big lead. 
And why is the count taking so long? Um, because there, there's a, a set timeline for counting mail-in ballots. So they, as long as they are postmarked by election day by Tuesday, um, they are they are accepted through Saturday. And then um, voters also have an additional two days for signature curing. So if you know if there's an issue with their signature, if it doesn't quite match, um, the county registrars are you know working to contact people um, to get those fixed. In Clark County, there were about ten that nearly 10,000 ballots that required signature curing, I think under half have been cured. So, you know, basically voters have until Monday to fix those issues. So with that timeline, you know, ballots are still being accepted today, tomorrow, um, through Saturday. Well, perhaps the, the biggest story in Nevada concerns a Republican named Jim Marchant. We are going to have paper ballots with any counterfeit measures built in. We're actually going to track our ballots, every one of them. Lucia, who is Jim Marchand and why is the rest of the country so interested in the race he's contesting? Yes, so um, he's running for secretary of state and, you know, one of their biggest uh, tasks is election administration. Um, he's also a very prominent election denier. You know, he started a coalition to get other um, MAGA Republicans elected as Secretary of State. So there was kind of this coordinated effort there. Um, he also wants to re- repeal uh, voting measures in Nevada, such as early voting, mail-in ballots. He distrusts voting machines, so he's also led an effort to hand-count paper ballots, um, and that and that's something a rural county here has has kind of followed. Um, and, you know, those kinds of things, those kinds of um, pushes to hand-counting paper ballots are fueled by baseless claims of widespread voter fraud. So it's very significant, you know, if, if he does get elected, he will be, you know, handling elections in 2024 in Nevada. That's Lucia Starbuck. She joined us from KUNR Reno. She's their democracy reporter and one of the many great reasons to support your local NPR station. Lucia, thanks for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Now let's turn back to political analyst Rena Shaw and Chris Scott with Democracy for America. Chris, as you as you hear Lucia there, we should know that Nevada was the home state of the former Democratic Senate Majority Leader, Harry Reid. He was so beloved, they named the local airport after him. So should the fact that this race is so competitive ring alarm bells for the Dems? I don't think it should ring alarm bells. We knew that Nevada was likely going to be a battleground state going into this cycle, uh, and it was going to be a hard-fought contest. It was one of the states uh, that the GOP felt like they had a better chance with the vulnerable uh, Democrat. Uh, Again, there are so many ballots still to be uh, counted there. So uh, while we have had a closely contested race, I think that's been par for the course in a lot of these races across uh, these midterms, a lot of them have been a lot more closely contested than what they usually are. But still saying where the votes are left to be counted, you got to feel pretty good about Cortez Mastow's chances to pull this one out. Some of you called in and told us about election deniers who've won races in your state. Effectively, a massive gerrymander has made it impossible for years now to get rid of a Republican extremist Freedom Caucus member, uh, Andy Harris, uh, an election denier, uh, really way to the right. And once again, he can't be beaten by any Democrat 
I am feeling a little bit frustrated with what happened with J.D. Vance, a clear election denier and not one of our Appalachian folks. But what I have noticed about this year's election cycle is we have to stop counting southeastern Ohioans Ohioans out, and we have to stop pretending like the big lie has not infiltrated people's decisions and what they're doing and how they're voting. Michael, Elizabeth, thanks for those messages. Rena, how do election deniers like Jim Marchant help or harm Republican chances in 2024? I think if you look across the board and you see any election denier that was on the ballot across the country, you see a sense that these are people that wouldn't have run actually prior. Uh, These are people that felt emboldened by the big lie. They felt that they could win with the same playbook that Trump used. And they have this deep desire to relitigate the 2020 election. That's so bad for the GOP that wants to try to find its way out of this conundrum. On the one hand, they're able to raise money off the Trump name. On the other, they can't seem to talk about anything else except for the 2020 election and how the uh, the devils are the Democrats. This just was not the case even 10 years ago on Capitol Hill. What I witnessed when I was working for Republicans was not an obsession with power. This, there wasn't the sense that I'll say anything to stay in power. There was a sense that there there were these social values that they could talk about and win with. And we saw that. There was a lot of celebration on the right of the overturn of Roe v. Wade. But when we talk about values, we have to go beyond the social. We have to go beyond the politics of the moment. So I'm talking about what younger Republicans might have an appetite for. As I've had the great privilege of traveling the country, I've heard from younger Republicans have an appetite for ranked choice voting. It's a great systemic reform. You're listening to our election roundup. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. We're still sifting through the results from the midterms and have gotten the latest from Nevada. Let's turn now to Arizona. Jeremy Duda is a reporter for Axios based in Phoenix. Jeremy, thanks for making time for us. Thanks for having me. So Mark Kelly is the incumbent Democratic senator, and he's duking it out with challenger Blake Masters. What's the state of the race? Uh, Well, uh, Kelly picked up a few votes last night um, on the uh, Wednesday night, he's uh, leading by about five points, uh, 95,000 or so votes. Um, the lead is pretty solid. I think the general expectation is that he will probably uh, hold on to that, although there are still a lot of votes uh, in Arizona left to count, uh, more than uh, 600,000 as of uh, Thursday morning. And those votes are largely expected to favor Republicans for the most part. So I would expect to see a lot of tightening there. Arizona's gubernatorial race between Democrat Katie Hobbs and Republican Carrie Lake is still neck and neck. What's the latest there? Uh, That is uh, Hobbs is leading uh, by about 13,000 votes and uh, about a little over half a percentage point lead. Um, Again, with those outstanding votes, 600,000 plus, uh, as I said, those are expected to favor Republicans. Those are largely early ballots that people dropped off on Election Day. That'll take some time to verify if those break, you know, for Republicans, as a lot of people expect, that's going to be bad news for Hobbs. Uh, it's a very narrow lead. Um, it's, it's hard to say. This is a, 
people have changed a lot of their voting patterns over the last few years. So two years ago, those votes uh, that were counted after Election Day mostly favored Republicans. That's the expectation again. But there's a lot of them, a lot more than usual. So it's kind of hard to say exactly what will happen there. But that is a, uh, you know, if if the if the votes do break for Republicans, that probably will be enough to push Lake into the lead. Well, as someone who's observed Arizona politics for a while, to what extent did the noise tied to the gubernatorial race in Arizona have an impact on the Senate race? Um, it's it's hard to say. You did not see a lot of a lot of coordination between the two. You know, on the Republican side, you had this slate of statewide candidates. Uh, you know, Masters Lake uh, for Attorney General for Secretary of State. And they were all campaigning together. They were all. There was a joint advertising, stuff like that. You see billboards all over town, signs, you know, say, you know, Blake and Lake. You didn't see that on really on the uh, Democratic side outside of, I think, probably when pr- former President Obama was in town a couple weeks ago. Um, These are very different campaigns. You know, Mark Kelly has, uh, you know, won two years ago and is, you know, winning now by, you know, doing his best to appeal to the center. He's, uh, you know, runs more as an, is a Democrat, but runs more as an independent trying to, you know, Kasim's a very centrist, moderate voice who's not necessarily tied to a party. Katie Hobbs has, you know, been a Democratic you know, legislator and Secretary of State for a long time. She's not necessarily, she's not necessarily have those same kind of centrist credentials. It was a you know, very different campaign and it was very much based on kind of opposition to uh, Carrie Lake. Well, we got this question for you, Jeremy. Florida, Texas, and New York are larger than Nevada and Arizona. What's the holdup? What can you tell our listener? Um, it's, it's due to the way our early voting system works. We have 27 days of early voting. Uh, you get your, and this is what most people, how most people cast their ballots in some form. You get it in the mail. You can fill it out, put it in the mail that day, send it back, or you can uh, wait until election day and then drop it off at a po- any polling place, which is the advantage of you. Don't, if there's a line, you don't have to wait. But the uh, downside to that is the way that they verify these early ballots, because obviously you're not talking to a poll worker. You can't show them your ID in person. You sign your name and election workers will take that look at that signature and compare it to signatures they have on record and uh, to make sure they match. And if they don't, they'll reach out and contact the voter. And so for those all those ballots that were dropped off on election day in Maricopa County alone, uh, the Phoenix area, has about 275,000 of them. Plus, there's some that came in the mail, like over the weekend and on Monday. Election workers have to verify those signatures. They obviously don't have time to do that on Tuesday when the election is playing out. And so they start doing that, you know, Wednesday morning after the election. And that is a that is a laborious process. Plus, there's also a mandatory five-day period for what's known as curing, where if the signature doesn't appear to match, they'll reach out to the voter and try and confirm whether or not that's the person who actually signed the ballot. So that takes a while, and uh, that is largely what is uh, causes things to be delayed so much here. Well, as we've noted, both the Senate and governor races are incredibly close. What happens if they come down to a very small margin? Could there be a runoff or a recount? Um, we don't have runoffs in Arizona for anything except for uh, city races, but uh, recount very is very much could happen. Uh, we actually changed the law here in Arizona earlier this year to kind of expand the situations in which a recount could happen. Previously, had been uh, the margin between the two candidates had to be. 0.1% or less, one-tenth of a percent or less, or 200 votes for a statewide race, whatever is uh, less, I believe. They, you know, Because of how close the presidential race was out here uh, two years ago, uh, Joe Biden won by about 10,500 votes. They changed that to a that margin to a half a percentage point. So that could be anywhere from you know 10,000 to 15,000 votes, depending on how many uh, 
ballots are ultimately cast. So, it, you know, based on how some of these races are looking right now, it's, you know, very possible that we could see some runoffs. We won't know that. That won't become official until, I believe, December 5th when the Secretary of State's office uh, certifies the statewide canvas. So no runoffs would uh, be officially called until around then. That's Jeremy Duda. He's a reporter for Axios based in Phoenix. Jeremy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You know, Rena and Chris, the Arizona Republican Party is ground zero for election deniers from top to bottom on the GOP ticket. They all claim without evidence that the 2020 election was stolen. We've talked about what this means for the GOP specifically, but no matter who wins, Chris, what do you think this conspiracy's popularity means for the future of American politics? I think we have to definitely be worried about uh, whether or not we continue to see a trend of election deniers run. Um, This year, I think we saw a lot of Democrats, particularly progressive candidates uh, for secretary of state, for attorney general, uh, even some gubernatorial candidates beat off uh, election deniers. But I do not think this is the last that we heard of them. I think it is a very dangerous thing. Uh, to continue to have candidates that push conspiracies that really uh, rip apart the fabric of our democracy uh, and how we can continue to advance uh, as a country if we have people that keep um, extremely challenging uh, things that just have no merit to be challenging uh, the way that they are. Rena, your thoughts? I'm very worried about misinformation, disinformation, and the future of the GOP. You know, a lot of people breathed a sigh of relief this week, particularly never Trumpers and maybe Trumpers. They thought this week augured well for the future of election denialism, as well as, um, you know, essentially how people do politics in the Republican Party these days. And I say, don't don't be so quick to assume that Trumpism is dead. Uh, it's just not. Election Denialism is baked in using a different word, uh, actually, in today's GOP. You hear that again from Governor Glenn Youngkin when he talked about election integrity throughout his campaign for governor of Virginia when he ran. And I, I heard it this year in candidates who are on the ballot for the midterms. Look, you look at Arizona, for example, and you see a former Republican who's on the ballot for Arizona Attorney General in a race that's, I believe, still too close to call. Chris Mays, the Democrat for uh, Attorney General in Arizona, was running against, is running against Abraham Hamade, who's a Republican. It's 50 to 49 with 70% of the votes in right now. That's really, really close. That doesn't look good. And then you zoom out and go to to Lauren Boebert's race, uh, the member of Congress that a lot of people love to hate. (laughs) And uh, she's still in a very tight race. The Republicans would do well to get candidates like Lauren Boebert's opponent, Adam Frisch, as well as Abigail Spanberger, who was able to win again in Virginia in her congressional race. Those would be great Republican candidates in deep blue areas for the Republicans, Uh, again. But you don't see that. You don't see that real... Uh, reaching out to those kind of candidates. There's one good thing that's happening, though, and it's that I believe there's a rise of the moderate Democrat. And perhaps the blue dogs really aren't extinct, as many of us have said over the years. So there's there's a real opportunity here for Democrats to gain this right and keep the presidency in 2024 by go ahead and, and say who you want next. 
Maybe it's not Newsom. Maybe it's somebody like Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan or somebody like a Jared Polis who made Colorado blue. I think the Democrats have a real advantage here. And I think things are still not looking good for the GOP. But for Americans in general, we shouldn't breathe a sigh of relief. The GOP is still rife with problems related to political extremism. Chris, when you hear this argument about moderate Democrats and you think about the young voters, the Gen Zers who voted for the first time this midterm will be casting votes in 2024 and what's drawing them to the polls. I mean, what are Dems going to have to figure out for the party and who they put up as candidates? Again, I think we've seen a wave since really 2018, the rise of the progressive candidate uh, in the Democratic Party and a lot of the victories uh, that you are seeing. You look at a Colorado first person that comes to mind is Jenna Griswold uh, of Secretary of State. I think about the Ayanna Presley's, the uh, AOC's, uh, and that trend has continued. Obviously, like I said earlier, Maxwell Foss, Delia Ramirez, Greg Kassar. Uh, you look at one of the seats that were flipped in Ohio, uh, Amelia Sykes. Candidates that are really able to speak to those kitchen table issues, that are able to put the voters that are closest to the pain closer to the power, that is what is resonating in the Democratic Party. And let's be very, very clear Without progressives, you don't get a bill back better even passed in Congress in the first place. So progressive candidates are very much alive and here to stay. And I think they are very much the future of the Democratic Party if we want to continue to win elections uh, the way that we have been lately. Um, We got this question from Mike who says, do you think a runoff between Walker and Warnock will increase black voter turnout? Chris, what do you think? I would always love to see more black uh, voter turnout. Uh, I do not think you will definitely see a drop off uh, at all. I think what will be interesting is what do white Democrats end up doing uh, in that uh, runoff? Do they stay enthusiastic uh, and still uh, come out similar to the situation that we were faced in in 2020? But I fully expect uh, black voters to show up again uh, just as as they did in 2020. We also got this from Jennifer in Springfield, who says, I'm so annoyed with the media reporting on polling and predictions leading up to the election. How many would-be voters were discouraged from voting by this? And I don't know that either of you can give uh, a strong read on that. I'll say we, we are very cautious about polling on this show. I side-eye a lot of polling. But I mean, what do you think, Rena? Do you think voters are discouraged? I absolutely do. As a political strategist, I've said, well, since 2016, basically, don't look at the polls. Just don't pay attention because a lot of the methods are questionable. And frankly, as Americans, we should all want to be on the side of democracy. And that just means we need to participate. We need to exercise our voice, which is your vote. And I think looking at the big picture here, there are a lot of young people that are feeling really encouraged by some of these results not just Maxwell Frost in Florida, but young people like Nabila Saeed, who's an Indian American woman that was able to flip a Republican suburban district, and she's only 23 years old. She's going to be in the Illinois legislature. 
these are great little wins that we can talk about and say, democracy is working, but we all need to participate. So do your part, get out there and talk about what's important to you. To me, that's increasing opportunity, prosperity, competition, innovation. I'm a mother. I care about these things. I know those values help make our society better for everyone. And I will talk to my neighbors about that. And I want people to take that message and hear that. It doesn't have to be about the figureheads of the parties or how the parties aren't serving us. We can do better by zeroing in on the local and state races that also serve us well. Well, let's hear from President Biden. He spoke to reporters on Wednesday. Regardless of what the final tally in these elections show, and there's still some counting going on, I'm prepared to work with my Republican colleagues. The American people have made clear, I think, that they expect Republicans to be prepared to work with me as well. I just want to have both of you set some expectations here from Democrats and Republicans. We don't know where the balance of power is going to be in Congress, but what are you what are you watching as we figure out what that's going to look like going forward, Chris? Well, I'm still very much uh, looking at Arizona. I'm looking at Georgia. Uh, Particularly for us, we still uh, have a seat that we're trying to flip. Arizona won with Jevin Hodge, uh, which is the Maricopa County area that we're keeping a close eye on. Uh, And again, I think it says a lot, depending on if Democrats are able to keep the Senate, uh, what does this uh, Congress look like? Is it a president that has to just consistently or are we at least seeing some things where Democrats can fight for certain things, even if they're not going to fully get it past the House? And I think with those slim margins, uh, if the Republicans take the House with slim margins, I do think there are wins that can be had by the Democratic Party being able to peel off uh, a couple of Republicans, depending on the type of bill that it is. Rena, your thoughts? I believe that Kevin McCarthy has to show leadership. He's going to have a clown car uh, to try to wrangle and deal with if he is in the leadership as a speaker. That is the reality is that a guy who hasn't really shown the best leadership all this time is going to be tasked with the hardest test I believe he'll have. I want the GOP to do better when it comes to developing an economic policy agenda that isn't just based in Trumpian populism and grievance. And in general, find better candidates, GOP. They're out there. That's political analyst Rena Shaw. Also with us, Chris Scott. Chris is chief political officer at Democracy for America. That's a progressive political action committee. Thanks to you both. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. It's our election roundup recorded at KUT, Austin's NPR station. Stay with us. We've got a lot more of our election roundup coming up in just a moment. I'm Jen White. Let's get into more of our election roundup. We spent a lot of time this year telling you about the biggest issues leading up to the midterms. Today, we're carving out some time to see what happened with several key ballot measures. That includes a look at online gambling in California and marijuana legalization in Maryland. But let's start with one issue I know you have a lot of thoughts on, abortion. This is Kathleen from Northern Virginia. Hi, it's Liz. I'm calling from Wyandotte County, Kansas. Hi, my name is Beth. I live in rural Indiana. I am incredibly grateful that I woke up this morning seeing that three states had affirmed abortion rights in their constitution. I'm not a bit surprised about the midterms. I saw that when we had our abortion amendment vote here in Kansas. I think what happens here is 
when you strip a right away from someone, especially women, that's been in place for 50 years, there are repercussions to be had. I always thought it was about the economy, too, but I think the pundits are wrong because most of the pundits are male. Everybody I've talked to says that the human rights issue of abortion access is really what brought them to the polls. Thanks for those messages. Joining us is Shafali Luthrup. She's the health reporter at the 19th News. Shafali, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. And in Kentucky, we have Divya Karthikeyan. She's the capital reporter at Kentucky Public Radio. Divya, it's great to have you. Thank you for having me. So voters across the country delivered a series of decisive victories for abortion rights during this year's midterms. It was the first nationwide election since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June. But perhaps the biggest surprise came in Ruby Red, Kentucky. Divya, tell us about the abortion amendment that was defeated in Kentucky on Tuesday. Right. Um, So this is Amendment 2 on the ballot. Uh, Amendment 2 would add the following, would have added the following language to the state's constitution. Um, It's 25 words. Pretty simple. Um, to protect human life, nothing in this constitution shall be construed to secure or protect a right to abortion or require the funding of abortion. So it's pretty, uh, you know, vague. And compared to the amendment that we saw at Kansas in terms of language, there's no real, uh, you know, uh, take or um, explanation for exceptions uh, in cases of rape or incest. Uh, you know, uh, right now we have a trigger law in place and we have um, a six-week ban. Uh, but this would basically, a yes vote um, for this amendment would support amending the state constitution to state that nothing in the document creates a right to an abortion. Now, a no vote would oppose amending the state constitution and introducing this pretty clear-cut language with a finality that would also set abortion rights back uh, in Kentucky and just tougher um, to be litigated even. So just to be clear, Kansans, when they voted on that amendment in that state, that would have removed abortion protections that already existed in the state constitution. In Kentucky, this amendment was sort of a preemptive move to try to prevent those protections being added to the state constitution, right? That's right. Um, it's uh, You're actually introducing this language into the Constitution to make it clear to when future lawsuits come in, which it will, uh, you know, it would give state lawmakers more power to regulate abortion and prevent courts from finding a right to abortion under the state's, you know, foundational document. Now, Shafali, you could argue abortion rights had a huge night on Tuesday. It was on the ballot in five states, and at least four of them, voters chose to fortify abortion protections. Now, the fifth, Montana, hasn't been called, but it seems likely to follow suit. What do you think that says about how voters feel about this issue? This is really striking. It is, frankly, far more decisive than I or anyone I spoke to in the past couple of days expected it to be. There was really this sense coming in especially given how little polling we had on these individual measures that we would see maybe some victories for abortion rights and some losses. But this really uniform response across the country in states with really varying politics, you have Michigan, you have California, you have Montana, you have Kentucky, you have Vermont. It really signifies that voters are thinking about this and They have been really affected by the overturning of Roe v. Wade last summer. They have really internalized what it has meant for the patients who have had to travel out of state for care. The horror stories many of us have heard about people suffering life-threatening consequences to a pregnancy, having to leave their home state because they can't get an abortion anymore. And the other thing that I think is really striking is that this 
potentially offers a different path for abortion rights organizers in particular. Can they disaggregate abortion from other political choices, put it to voters without asking them, do you support a Democrat or a Republican, and then see if they can get majority support that way? Because as we saw in Kentucky, as we saw in Kansas this summer, the rejection of these amendments that would have eliminated abortion rights that came from Democrats, it came from Republicans, and it came from independents. Hmm. Now, Divya, you spoke to Kentucky voters about this issue this week. What did you hear from them about why rejecting this amendment was important? You know, it's so interesting um, that usually this has been framed uh, from an outside perspective, that this is a binary issue of like, yes, I absolutely support abortion rights and no, um, absolutely do not. There is no place for abortion rights in Kentucky. Uh, But, you know, it's far more complicated than that. I spoke to uh, Rachel Sweet, uh, who is the campaign manager for Protect Kentucky Access, which is the coalition of organizations that um, are fighting for abortion rights uh, and help defeat this amendment. Uh, talking to her, talking to how she's reached out to voters, talking to voters on the ground, you know, what they've basically said is uh, we are we can still be conflicted on where we stand on abortion rights, but the fact that there are no exceptions for rape or incest that is written into this ballot, um, you know, language has given cause for concern even among people who support who oppose uh, abortion rights uh, in Kentucky. And so that's been something that a lot of women have been thinking about. A lot of voters have been thinking about: is this is not as clear cut an issue as simply as this ballot amendment states. Well, here's an email we got from Claire. Reproductive rights are an economic issue. Ask any woman planning a family. She knows her career will be interrupted and possibly derailed. An unplanned pregnancy could spell disaster for her and her family, regardless of marital status. Women voted on the abortion issue because pregnancy is not only a health risk, it's an economic issue. I would like Congress to recognize this fact and ensure women and families get the support they need. Divya, what impact will the rejection of this amendment have on abortion access in Kentucky? Let's focus first on the short term. Yeah. um, So what this is basically saying is now we're, you know, in uh, less than a week uh, on November 15th, we are going to have the Kentucky, you know, state Supreme Court um, hear one of the challenges to the existing abortion laws. So we have two in mind, just reminding you. Uh, We have the 2019 trigger law, which um, is written into the, um, you know, which is written in um, and passed by the state legislature that basically says that uh, once Roe v. Wade was overturned, uh, this automatically triggers a ban on abortion um, immediately. And so an immediate effect. And then we also have a ban on abortion up to six weeks. And so one of the challenges are going to be seen by the Kentucky Supreme Court very, very quickly. And so all of this lies in the court's interpretation of the, um, you know, the decision on the amendment right now. So we don't know which way that's going to go, but um, we're going to see an immediate effect in less than a week. Mm. Shafali, you know, looking at the results of, of these ballot measures a- across the country, is do you think there's a recalculus being made right now for, for people on both sides of the aisle about how abortion is is used as as a political part of a political platform. It seems that we are witnessing a real reckoning right now and I do want to throw a couple of caveats in. The biggest one is that obviously this election 
happened a few months after the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade. The next national election will be in 2024, two years away, and in all likelihood, given how narrow the margins in Congress will be, even if Democrats do somehow keep the House and Senate, we don't expect national abortion protections. This will still be a voting issue in 2024, but it may not have the same salience that it does now. Still, we have seen that when threatened with the loss of abortion rights, Democrats and abortion rights supporters really do come out and vote on this issue. It was, if not, it wasn't the number one issue for many voters, but it was a heavily motivating factor in determining their votes. At the same time, we certainly are seeing a reckoning amongst Republicans who have seen the results and have seen the numbers. And they know, to Divya's point, that restrictions without exceptions for rape and incest in particular are incredibly unpopular. We're already seeing some sort of divides and Republicans on the state level trying to realign, maybe reconsider adding rape and incest exceptions into their state bans. But what's going to happen is they'll be faced with a real reckoning. Do they try and moderate their stance to appeal to voters? Will that be enough? And do they risk alienating the very influential anti-abortion groups that are fundraising for them? Adivia, I wanted to circle back to the impact of the rejection of the amendment in Kentucky and the long-term impact of that move on the part of voters. Right. Um, You know, again, uh, everything seems to be, it's still many moving parts here because um, uh, coming back to, you know, November 15th, we're going to have the state Supreme Court um, decide on um, an important important challenge uh, to abortion. And it all lies on the court's interpretation of, um, you know, uh, Kentucky's uh, voters turning up. Uh, And this was, I mean, this was a pretty close, uh, you know, difference between yes and no. You know, you have 52.4% of voters who voted no. We have 47.7%. 6% voted, who voted yes, so it's pretty close. Uh, but what uh, I'm understanding is still a lot of moving parts. The battle has not ended for sure. And we also have medical providers, especially, who've been very open about uh, their concerns on this. Uh, you know, more than 400 medical professionals basically in Kentucky have signed an open letter asking, you know, Kentuckians to vote down the amendment in the past and that this would make it harder for providers from giving necessary care and puts patients' lives at risk. And so there is going to be overall worse health outcomes. So people have been from the medical community pretty open about this. And we're still yet to see the full implications and consequences of this. We got this tweet from Katrina in Kentucky. They write, we may have voted no to the amendment, but Kentucky's attorney general is still anti-abortion rights. He released a statement against the outcome. Divya, what does all this legal back and forth about this ban mean for patients? You know, um, again, this is a this looks to me like a sort of tussle between state lawmakers and the court's interpretation because um, we've had the state lawmakers here have constantly pushed on the idea that the point of Roe v. Wade being overturned is to return the power to state lawmakers to make these decisions on abortion and healthcare by passing laws, and that this would you know protect Kentucky and. Uh, 
you know, the Attorney General Daniel Cameron uh, as speaking to that amend uh, to the statement that he'd provided. Uh, they had filed another motion with the Kentucky Supreme Court to explain why this outcome that voters decided it has no bearing on whether the court should consider creating a Kentucky version of Roe v. Wade. So, you know, patients are sort of stuck in the middle still right now uh, because abortion is still, um, uh, you know, not legal. And so that it's they're sort of stuck in between a rock and a hard place right now for patients. Well, let's turn to this voicemail we got from Suzanne in Michigan. I am extremely pleased with the outcome of the midterms in Michigan. Democratic incumbents won the three races for governor, attorney general, and secretary of state, and they beat all election deniers. Also, three ballot proposals passed that advanced voter rights, forced politicians to disclose where they get their money, and enshrine abortion in the state constitution. Most importantly, the Democrats now have control of the state legislature. The residents of Michigan have been subjected to cruel and regressive policies by the Republicans for the last 40 years, and now they're finally out of power. Thanks for that message, Suzanne. So a lot of changes for Michigan, and as we heard, of course, one of those is abortion. Shafali, in Michigan, voters approved a ballot initiative that will enshrine the right to abortion access in the state constitution. What kind of victory is this for the abortion rights voting bloc? This is tremendous, and the Michigan results were quite decisive. I think we can look both to the ballot initiative, this right to reproductive freedom initiative, as it was termed, and Governor Gretchen Whitmer's re-election. She campaigned very explicitly on protecting abortion rights. Right now, Michigan is one of the rare states in the Midwest where abortion is legal, and this essentially guarantees that that will stay the case What it means is that the folks of Michigan can continue to access abortion, but it also means that people in nearby states, even Wisconsin right now where abortion is not available, have a place that is nearby to travel to. What we've seen is that as more and more states do enact abortion restrictions and begin to enforce them, they're often in clusters, right? The South, the Midwest, et cetera, and that forces people to travel hundreds of miles, often multiple states away, journeys that become more expensive, harder to maintain, harder to afford. Michigan keeping abortion access adds one more place that is much more accessible for a lot of people who will be seeking care. Well, in North Carolina, Republicans failed to win a veto-proof legislative supermajority, and that means Democratic Governor Roy Cooper will continue to have the power to block abortion restrictions in that state. What does that mean for abortion rights there, Shafali? That is also tremendous. We have seen very few states in the South, and the Southeast in particular, keep abortion legally available. It is North Carolina, it is Florida, although Florida bans abortion after 15 weeks. And for now, it is South Carolina because the legislature there would like to ban abortion but can't come to an agreement on what that law will look like. This means that at least for now, North Carolina is perhaps the most stable place in the Southeast for people seeking abortion. It is also the place where we have seen the largest percentage increase in abortions performed since Roe was overturned. We saw some data a couple weeks ago telling us that. And what it means is that this is a really important access point for a lot of people And it will be because it's the only place they can really realistically get to. Well, we got this tweet from Jean B., who says, I'm a lifelong female Kentucky resident, a Democrat who was frankly surprised by the outcome of Amendment 2. Women quietly voted all over our country. I am proud of Kentucky. Divya, how are Democrats talking about capitalizing on this abortion victory in this deeply red state? 
Um, I think uh, there has definitely been when we when we talk about from what I'm hearing when we talk about both what happened in Kansas and Kentucky, uh, the word that's co- sort of thrown around by everybody alike, uh, including politicians and legislators, uh, Democrat or Republican, has been surprise. Uh, this has been a big surprise, and I understand why because um, you know it it, it is a red state, but uh, I think the um, turnout is, is something that has really surprised a lot of people, which is um, at this point, it was 50% of voters. There were more independent voters. Um, Democrats really showed up. And so this is something that we were sort of anticipating because Remember, Amendment 2 is an amendment. It is a constitutional amendment that will affect a lot of people's lives. Uh, very different from also voting for a candidate with multiple policy positions. So at this point, um, you know, uh, Democratic legislators have come out uh, looking to this as a success. Uh, they've framed this in the past while talking about abortion very, very carefully. Um, they, you know, uh, our governor, governor, Andy Bashir has called it extremist um, the amendment, especially because it doesn't have exceptions. But at the moment, right now, they're really, um, they really they seem to be seeing this as a very positive outcome. Uh, but there has been a certain care around talking about abortion in this red state uh, among Democrats. We got this email from Aaron who says the more crucial issue than rape or an incest exception is that women are being denied drugs due to a possible effect on a future pregnancy. Shafali, there were questions about how much of a driving force abortion was going to be in these midterm elections. And I wonder how you're thinking about not just the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but some of the I can't say they were unexpected because people did point out there will be these complications related to abortion care in terms of miscarriage care or access to certain medications. But but how much of it is just that we had this period of time to see the broader impacts of, of the Dobbs decision? I think that was really, really revealing because we heard stories about people seeking abortion. We heard pe- about people not able to access certain medications for something like arthritis. We heard experiences of a people who miscarried or who had ectopic pregnancies, all of whom could not get the care that they needed. And I think what this did is it allowed many voters to recast abortion as something that happened to other people and something that could directly affect them or someone they love because abortion is common pregnancy in general is even more common. And just seeing how widespread the impact of abortion bans could be allowed this to be much more salient, I think, than it would have been otherwise. So moving forward, Shafali, how will you be watching the way states like Kentucky and Kansas test abortion as a standalone issue in red states? I think we have a few things to keep in mind. We can look at states like Kentucky and Kansas where The voters did come out to reject anti-abortion ballot measures, but we know that there will still be pressure on conservative lawmakers to pass restrictions. And how will they navigate these new politics? What kinds of restrictions might they still try and put forward, especially in a state like Kansas where there is a right to an abortion, but that doesn't mean that a largely Republican legislature won't try and enact some forms of restrictions. The other thing that I do think is really interesting is to look at how Republican leadership in many states with abortion bans look at what can be put on the ballot. In a state like Texas, we are not expecting to see an abortion rights ballot initiative, even though the state's abortion ban is not popular. 
Will we see other states where governors or lawmakers try and raise the raise the standards to get something on the ballot? I think that is an open question and one to keep an eye on. That's Shafali Luthra. She's a health reporter at the 19th News and in Kentucky, Divya Karthikeyan, the Capitol reporter at Kentucky Public Radio. Shafali, Divya, thanks for joining us. Let's move now to another story we covered in the run-up to the midterms, online gambling. Joe Garofoli is a senior political writer at the San Francisco Chronicle. He's also host of the It's All Political on Fifth and Mission podcast. Joe, welcome back. Good to be back. Okay, so let's do a quick refresher. There were two ballot initiatives about online gambling in California. First, explain what Proposition 26 would have done. Proposition Proposition 26 would have uh, allowed... Uh, Gambling on sports, uh, sports gaming, uh, but you had to be uh, in person at a one of our uh, native tribe casinos in California or at one of four racetracks. And then what about Proposition 27? Proposition 27 would have allowed uh, online sports gaming. So you could be anywhere your phone is and uh, huh. place a bet. All right. So both these props were on the ballot. How did they fare? Uh, horribly. Uh, they, they, they were destroyed. Uh, Californians spoke uh, very loudly and they were overwhelmingly uh, defeated. Um, uh, it, was, it, was, it was not close. There, there were um, uh, more than $460 million was spent between the two, uh, pro and con on both sides, which, which is the most money ever spent on a ballot measure in, in national history. Um, and th- all that money went to television commercials, as we spoke about last time I was on. And uh, for a while here, uh, you, you could not escape a screen in California without seeing an ad for uh, pro or con for one of these ballot measures. And well, the result was voters were confused. Yeah, well, well, those ads were funded by some of the state's Native American tribal government and the gaming industry. For years, California's non-gaming tribes have been left in the dust. Wealthy tribes with big casinos make billions, while small tribes struggle in poverty. Prop 27 is a game changer. Seen this ad? It's not paid for by California tribes. It's paid for by the out-of-state gambling corporations that wrote Prop 27. 27 taxes and regulates online sports betting to fund permanent solutions to homelessness while helping every tribe in California. California tribes overwhelmingly oppose Proposition 27. Only a few tribes support 27, while over 50 tribes oppose Prop 27. Okay, Joe, just explain some of the dynamics we're trying to sift through in in those ads. (laughs) I'm having PTSD. I'll hear those voices in my sleep for months, I think. Um, Some of the dynamics involved are... uh, the tribes are concerned. Uh, they did not want the big gaming industries, DraftKings, uh, BetMGM, and FanDuel, which which wanted which back the online gambling. They want to control the uh, gaming industry themselves. But there's also a split within the native tribes uh, among the native tribes, of which there are, are uh, you know, more than a hundred here in, in California. Um, and uh, they would, you know, if they're concerned that if uh, we start with online gaming and that you know, sports gaming, and that would lead to online poker, and that would lead to people not coming to their uh, brick and mortar casinos, which are the lifeblood of the tribes here. That's what that uh, provides uh, tens of thousands of jobs, uh, millions of dollars, and it's also made the tribes into a, a very a strong political force here in California. You had uh, the the uh, you had very few. Uh, elected officials, of course, dominated by Democrats here in California, uh, coming out in favor of uh, the, the sports, the big uh, 
uh, the, you know, the DraftKing, BetMGM, and FanDuel uh, initiative. So, uh, yeah, it would. There's. Um, it's a lot of dynamics at play in this. Mm-hmm. So, what happens now? I mean, will, will online betting advocates give up, or is this, you know, time to regroup and get ready to fight the fight again? Oh, there's the there's so much money on the table here, so to speak. There's uh, the the industry is worth three to four billion dollars. That's just sports gaming in California. So this this would be uh, the grand prize of states to um, if this were to be legalized here. Um, so we will see this again uh, on uh, the 2024 ballot. Um, this isn't going away anytime soon. Ultimately, why do you think voters blocked these initiatives? Well, I think a, a couple of things. Uh, there was polling done uh, several weeks ago that this just wasn't a priority for Californians. Uh, we have we have much bigger problems here: uh, an affordable housing uh, crisis. We, you know, the, the high cost of living, homelessness. Uh, these are the major issues here, and, and, and voters didn't see, you know, well, geez, I need to uh, be able to bet on sports easier as, as a high priority. Plus, as, as alluded to earlier, this was a this was a lot of confusion here. People couldn't tell uh, which tribes were on which side, and, and typically when voters are confused on ballot measures out here, and, and which we have a lot of them, uh, they vote no, and they did big time here. Georgia is once again headed for a runoff in December, but as a reminder, NPR follows election calls made by the Associated Press. So, of course, we'll have the latest and keep answering your comments and questions tomorrow on the Friday News Roundup. Now, let's keep going with our midterm ballot measure check-in. Joe Garofoli is a senior political writer at the San Francisco Chronicle and host of the It's All Political on Fifth and Mission podcast. Uh, Joe, I want to make sure we check in on some other California results. What were some of the big wins and losses in your state? Well, we're still uh, waiting on uh, some house races here uh, for uh, in California. The the one of the some of the few swing areas we have are in Orange County and in the Central Valley. And there, um, Katie Porter, who I'm sure many of your listeners have um, seen, she's a rising star in the Democratic Party. She is probably going to be running for Senate uh, if uh, Dianne Feinstein, as expected, doesn't run again in a couple of years. She is uh, holding a lead of about 1,000 votes right now over Republican in her, her race. And uh, David Valadeo, a Republican who is one of the few people to vote to impeach President Trump and is uh, still has a political career, uh, he is uh, he is leading by a comfortable margin over his in his Central Valley seat here. So those are a couple of races that we're watching here. Uh, the, one of the big winners, uh, very uh, predictable, but was Gavin Newsom, um, our governor. And uh, we like to say that he's uh, warming up in the bullpen uh, in case President Biden decides not to run for president. Uh, he's uh, spent much of his election night speech uh, sort of uh, throwing shade at, uh, at Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. They have an ongoing uh, uh, sort of shadow shadow boxing uh, uh, fight uh, um, about uh, things. And, and they curiously, they both talked about freedom um, in their uh, election night speeches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, but they de- define it differently. Uh, DeSantis talked about the uh, anti wokeism that he uh, champions there in, in Florida. He doesn't really define it that well. But what he talks about was economic freedom and cultural freedom from government mandates. Whereas Newsom defines freedom as as bringing people together and, and allowing people to um, 
uh, you know, flourish under the freedom to you know be who they want, marry who they want, and and uh, and uh, economic, uh, or, or I'm sorry, uh, intellectual and uh, freedom here that they ha- we have in California. Um, well, well, let's quickly hear a bit of of uh, Governor Gavin Newsom's victory speech. We affirmed clearly with conviction that we are a true freedom state, that we embrace the rights of women and girls, and and I made the point that is a point of contrast with the uncertainty that we're currently experiencing as it relates to the national mood. But in California, uh, we have asserted ourselves with clarity and conviction, as only California can. And it's a point of pride as well, uh, because we recognize we have a lot more work to do. Joe, what agenda has Newsom laid out for California? Well, one of the first things he's going to do uh, as soon as the legislature is sworn in, uh, he's going to talk about taxing oil companies uh, for their uh, on their profits. He said, you know, why, why are gas prices uh, so high here in California? They, I mean, they're high everywhere, but they're extraordinarily high here. Um, and he's going to hold a special session of the legislature to talk about a, a, a tax on oil companies on their profits and as a way to you know, bring down the price of gasoline here. Um, that's one thing. He's also, uh, you know, there's he's a very strong environmental uh, program that he's doing here. We're trying to, um, there's a mandate for electric vehicles in, in about the next decade that all vehicles uh, sold here uh, would be uh, 100% electric. Um, so there's, he's, there, there's a, it's a very much a progressive type of uh, agenda here in California. And as Newsom says, he tries to draw the contrast to the rest of the country. Uh, Californians also overwhelmingly uh, decided to, voted to uh, enshrine abortion rights in our state constitution just in case um, uh, the, the Republicans, if they were to win in 2024, decide on a federal ban, that the hope is that that would sort of uh, protect a, a Californians' uh, abortion rights here. Any other big California results you think a national audience should watch? I, you know, the, there's still the Republican Party here is still. Um, Anemic. Uh, there was a hope that there, the among some, that they might be able to win the state office for the first time in uh, since 2006, but that hasn't happened. But the big race we're all watching now is the uh, L.A. mayor's race, um, where uh, Rick Caruso is and, and uh, Karen Bass, a congresswoman from um, uh, Los Angeles, are. are are fighting it out, and it's very, very close right now. Uh, California, we take a while to count the ballots, uh, so that race could be in uh, could be you know going on for several days uh, at least at this point. Um, uh, Rick Caruso has spent uh, over a hundred million dollars. He's a billionaire real estate developer. He's uh, recently uh, became a Democrat shortly before the race started, um, and he is <clears throat> tapping into concern many Angelinos have about. You know the state of their city. Uh, there's uh, there's uh, fifty, sixty thousand homeless folks on the street there, uh, and um, the uh, pandemic hit, uh, particularly hit the, the black and Latino communities very hard. And he's tapping into the you know frustration with government uh, the, to get stuff done here. Uh, so that is a race we do, did. Karen Bass, uh, a longtime uh, member of Congress, um, also in the top leader in the legislature here, is. Uh, Portraying herself as a um, as someone who could bring uh, Angelinos together, she's uh, done that uh, through her work in the legislature. Uh, but it is a uh, it's a surprisingly close race. But 
Caruso has spent $100 million, so <laughs> that'll buy you a lot of name recognition. Hmm. Well, that's Joe Garofoli. He's a senior political writer at the San Francisco Chronicle and host of the It's All Political on Fifth and Mission podcast. Joe, thanks for the update. Thank you for having me. Well, let's jump now from the West Coast to the East. Marijuana had some mixed successes at the ballot box on Tuesday. Voters in Maryland and Missouri voted to legalize recreational marijuana, but similar proposals failed in Arkansas and North Dakota. Joining us now is Danielle Gaines. She's the editor-in-chief of Maryland Matters. That's a nonprofit and nonpartisan news site about Maryland government and politics. Danielle, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much. So in Maryland, about two-thirds of voters approved a referendum favoring the legalization of marijuana that'll go into effect next July. How popular was this measure with Maryland voters? Yeah, I mean, it passed by the widest margin that we saw um, in the country on Tuesday, and there are still some ballots to be counted, and that percentage may still go up. Um, There was polling showing, you know, ahead of time that this was favored um, in the state by Republicans and Democrats alike. So one of the reasons it was... Um, I think so popular is because, you know, the Maryland legislature and Marylanders have been ruminating over this for a long time. And, um, you know, the General Assembly had started working on kind of some broad outlines for how a a legalized program should work in the state of Maryland before it went to the ballot box, including a lot of kind of equity measures that other states haven't necessarily thought through before taking these to referendum. Well, we got this message from James, who says, as a Marylander who recently returned after over a decade in California, where I voted in favor of legalizing recreational marijuana, I voted against legalizing it here in Maryland. I take issue with pretending it's a health product. And James asks this question, what's Maryland's plan, or any state for that matter, to handle all the advertising for cannabis that is or is about to show up everywhere? Danielle, is that something that was the legislature, the legislature is uh, thinking through? Yeah, so like I said, there's been, uh, you know, a lot of discussion about some, some issues and Ultimately, the legislature passed a piece of legislation that kind of broadly guides how um, some parts of this law would take effect, including some automatic expungement for simple possession charges that people have had in the past. But they have not worked through all of the issues yet. And, you know, notably, the voters have decided to approve cannabis use, but um, cannabis sales would still be illegal. So next January, when the legislature convenes, we're going to see them start to work through a lot more of these issues, um, including, you know, what a marketplace would look like, how that would be governed. When the state rolled out a medical cannabis program, they did include a lot of rules about how medical cannabis could be packaged um, and with a particular eye to how that would be received by children. So this measure was overwhelmingly approved by voters, Danielle, but was there any pushback against the measure? Of course, there is some pushback. There's still, you know, it's still a federal, uh, a federally listed Schedule One drug. Although the Biden administration has said that they're going to take a look at possibly changing that. Um, you know, there's some people who don't like it. We do have a medical cannabis program in the state of Maryland, um, but ultimately, you know, voters kind of resoundingly decided that it was time to move forward. We are um, near to D.C. where it's already legal as well. Mm-hmm. What sort of economic impact do you think this amendment will have on the state? You know, I think that's one of the things, of course, that the lawmakers are looking into with, um, you know, fervor. (laughs) Um, 
cannabis sales across the country are, you know, a multi-billion, tens of billions of dollars uh, industry. And so in Maryland, if this is going to be legalized, there's going to be a lot of concentration on, um, you know, taxation, how that money comes into state government, what it funds. Um, Part of what was passed last year includes reinvesting in communities that have been over-policed in the past and kind of guiding what sort of, um, you know, rehabilitation programs and reinvestment um, programs cannabis uh, tax revenues could go towards. Danielle, as I said, this measure won't go into effect until July. There are provisions spelling out a transitional period between January 1st of 2023 and July 1st, and that would include a fine of up to $100 for possession of under an ounce and a half of marijuana. How do you expect that transition to play out in the state? Yeah, so Maryland has has been moving to this, you know, slowly over time. So the state did already move to decriminalize possession of small amounts of marijuana a few years ago. And what's, you know, uh, being made now legal is that same threshold, more or less. So people will be able to uh, possess up to 1.5 ounces if you're 21 or older. And then... um, 1.5 1.5 ounces to 2.5 ounces becomes a civil fine, and then above that uh, will become um, will be punishable uh, by jail or a fine once again. Um, so there uh, have some experience in making that shift um, in policy through the decriminalization a few years ago, and the legislature has. Um, it put a lot of work into creating provisions that would allow auto expungement of, you know, kind of a narrow band of, of uh, former offenses. But anybody who was charged with simple possession and that was it will be able to um, see an expungement in very short order. Well, one of you tweeted this. In many states, I've been a criminal. July 1st, 2023 liberates me. And we also got this question. Will Maryland assist small marijuana farmers to stand up to big businesses and not fail? Uh, Danielle, explain a little bit more about this measure and what it actually means for the sale of marijuana in the state. Yeah, so the sale of marijuana is not legalized by this measure. This measure was just a very simple question. So that's one of the things that, um, you know, a legislative work group is working through now is what kind of marketplace to establish in the state of Maryland. Um, You know, your listener asked about kind of equity for smaller businesses and when Maryland's medical cannabis program launched uh, several years ago, once it kind of got underway, it became clear that there was not any real racial diversity within that um, system. And so when the state is in the process of launching um, legalized sports betting right now, and when they start to work on a marketplace for um, recreational cannabis in January, there has been now this kind of sustained focus on finding, um, you know, diversity within these businesses, equity within these businesses, and um, in sports betting, there was a big focus on making sure that um, homegrown Maryland businesses were able to be a part of that industry, not just the giants from out of state. So I think we'll probably see that discussion continue. How does Maryland line up with what we're seeing nationally uh, trending around this issue? Yeah, um, well, you know, Maryland uh, passed their referendum earlier this week by two thirds. Um, but I think you see kind of a slow push towards legalization and a change kind of an overall attitude towards legalization. You know, um, as you mentioned, it also passed in Missouri, a Midwestern state, and um, in the other states where it was on the ballot, you know, 
it was in the 40% range and, and the upper 40% range for one of the states, 47%. So kind of just barely didn't make it across the line. Um, I, I read something um, that, that we published that, you know, before Tuesday, recreational use of cannabis was legal in for 44% of the U.S. population already. So it's kind of coming to a threshold at this point, I think. And I think we'll see in states where there weren't referendums, I think you'll start to see this being a legislative discussion when their legislatures convene next well, as year. As you're watching Maryland's legislature grapple with what this means for the state, what will you be watching for specifically around how they answer that question around equity and the legalization of recreational marijuana? Yeah, I think, I, you know, I know there was a there was a, a real push by a lot of lawmakers to not put this onto the ballot until there was at least some discussion about that issue. And so this preliminary piece of legislation was passed and um, it's absolutely going to continue to be a part of the discussion as they move forward. You know, there were some parts of the legislation that passed um, last year that a lot of lawmakers weren't totally happy with. So um, it, you know, raised the... Um, fine for smoking in public, which won't be legal, um, but has been inequitably enforced in the past. So we might revisit that discussion. I expect to see that come up over and over again. That's Danielle Gaines. She's the editor-in-chief of Maryland Matters. That's a nonprofit and nonpartisan news site about Maryland government and politics. Danielle, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producers were Haley Blassingame and Maya Garg, with help from Michelle Harvin and the rest of the 118. A huge thanks to our friends at KUT, Austin's NPR station. We can't wait to visit again. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.